Welcome to Rank and File Radio, Prairies Edition. I am your guest host, Doug Nesbitt, the editor at rankandfile.ca. I'll be speaking with creator and original host of the show, Emily Leadham, about what she is up to these days, from her reporting on union busting to her recent muckraking at Press Progress around the Saskatchewan election. Our conversation was recorded November 7th, so there's already a dated reference to the Newfoundland grocery strike, which ended just a few days after recording. We'll definitely be doing some in-depth coverage on the grocery wars in Canada, from the origins of the Weston family fortune to how grocery jobs went from being good jobs to low-wage part-time jobs. As you've probably guessed, the show is going through big changes. We're doing it to tackle the issues and the problems and struggles that have really become much more severe and acute during uh, this pandemic and uh, simultaneous economic crash. So come along with us for the ride as we try to make sense of everything that's going on and the ways in which uh, we are organizing and fighting back on the job. So without further introduction, here is my conversation with Emily Leadham, recorded November 7th, 2020. We have a special guest, and that guest is the past host, Emily Leadham. Welcome to the show. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to your own show. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a few things we want to talk about. Um, one of the... The, the big things is kind of what's happening to labor in the pandemic. You're, the, sh- the show's been on a hiatus for uh, a while now, right? During the pandemic. I mean, things have been difficult, but you've been busy doing other things. So when, when's, how long has the show run for? When did it start? Uh, I believe it was about two years ago, I think, or m- maybe coming up on two and a half years now. It was um, in July and yeah, so it's been running for a couple of years and yeah, it's been an amazing, amazing time and amazing experience. And then, yeah, when the pandemic hit, uh, I sort of was like, I need to have a reset. I need to figure out the direction of the, the show because just so much was happening at once and it was so overwhelming. And I wanted to try to make it, you know, a real productive Thing that people could listen to without also getting overwhelmed and so I, in order to do that I just kind of needed to step back for a little bit and then I had another opportunity come along to work for uh, Press Progress which was really great and so yeah the show's been on a little bit of a hiatus and now I think we are in the process of um, figuring out the long-term vision of, of what this show is going to be, because I think it's a really great platform to explore uh, ideas about labor, about labor organizing. And uh, yeah, I hope it can continue in a new form, whatever that is. One of the things that's uh, been central to the whole show is is that clash between labor and capital, between workers and bosses. And the pandemic, of course, is no exception. Anyone who's been following uh, your show uh, leading up and into the start of the pandemic, uh, following what you've been writing uh, at rankandfile.ca, we did a whole flurry of articles in March and April, and then kind of the weight of the pandemic has forced us to figure out what we're doing. Uh, but right now, there are three, I guess you could call them essential worker strikes that are going on 
in Canada or three that have happened, uh, uh, two ongoing and one that's happened recently. On October 26th, of course, we had the amazing Alberta healthcare wildcat strike against the massive um, 11,000 job cuts to the healthcare system that the United Conservative Party is trying to do there. Uh, we also have grocery workers in Newfoundland who've been on strike since August 22nd against Dominion, which is uh, one of the brand names of Loblaws, the largest grocery store corporation in the country. And we also have in your own neighborhood of Winnipeg, we have uh, the strike at Stella's Cafe. And that's been on since September 21st. And just before the show started, you told me that the uh, cafe that's uh, on strike on Sherbrooke Street, I believe it is, uh, mm-hmm. there it, it's now been put up for sale by the owner. I was wondering, uh, what's going on with this strike? Like, what is Stella's, uh, is it in... You know, I've been to Winnipeg. I I popped into the Stellas to see what it was like. It just looks like a, you know, a typical large city coffee chain, but uh, it's a Winnipeg thing, right? Yeah. So Stellas is basically a a Winnipeg institution. There's it's a a local chain. There's, I think, maybe seven or eight uh, locations throughout the city. There's one at the airport and kind of one of the main ones is the one that's on strike here. Uh, on Sherbrooke Street and I live really close to it and I go there all the time Um, a lot of people really enjoy it and but it's also had kind of an open secret for years that there's been a history of you know workers experiencing harassment workers experiencing bullying uh, not being treated fairly it was kind of an open secret and then about two years ago actually kind of right after I started the show uh, there was this campaign that came out of workers and former Stella's workers um, called Not My Stella's, where, you know, hundreds of workers submitted anonymously their experiences with harassment and um, abuse, basically, by some managers at the Winnipeg, um, at the Stella's locations. And that sort of kicked off a union drive eventually. And UFCW came in and ended up unionizing about two locations. Um, But the entire time, the management has basically fought it tooth and nail. It's been really hard to get any significant changes. And so I believe the first collective agreement, um, they got through, um, what was it called? Arbitration, I think. And then the management was having you know they were not abiding by it basically and the union was filing grievances upon grievances and then when it came to negotiate the second agreement basically the management was fighting it and so the workers went on strike at the main location and yeah they've been on strike since september 21st like you said and uh yeah just recently I think it was just yesterday, someone found a for sale sign uh, posted in the window of the Stellas. And so this is like an institution uh, locally, and it's really disappointing. I think it kind of goes to show that um, you can't just valorize small businesses because they're small. They can pull all the same dirty tricks and uh, abuse workers just as as badly as a big corporation. Um, so that's kind of what's going on right now. But the whole saga has been so fascinating to watch 
going from an Instagram campaign of, you know, mostly women uh, who work there uh, documenting abuse, trying to get these managers out and then unionizing, going on strike. Like it's such an important story to learn about, I think. It's really interesting that, uh, I mean, Stella's has its own bakery. One of the uh, aspects of the Newfoundland grocery strike is that the uh, the striking grocery workers are actually picketing uh, one of the Weston bakeries, which is also a Loblaws uh, uh, facility. And there's this, um, even with this small business in Winnipeg with seven, eight stores and its own bakery in town, you have a very... Uh, on, a, on a smaller scale, you have a very similar dynamic where you have these supply chains of, you know, different goods have to be produced and shipped to the retail stores. And uh, you can see where there are, there are potentials for union power and workers' power to disrupt business as usual for these companies who are really, really going after these unions and trying to break them. And this is, this is kind of a discussion that we had back in the spring it's certainly a discussion that I have had ongoing with all sorts of different people, is the question of union busting. And it, and it looks different in uh, many different areas. Uh, you could argue that what's happened in Alberta with the, the uh, 9,300 jobs that are being contracted out, another, the rest of them up to the 11,000 are being, uh, those people are just being, uh, not being replaced as they retired. So uh, getting rid of those jobs by attrition I mean, that's kind of a form of union busting where you contract out. Then you have what's happening with Stella's, which is you just close the store. It's like closing a factory, <laughs> essentially, and those people are thrown out of work. And then in Newfoundland, you have grocery workers, like grocery workers across Canada for the three major chains, uh, Loblaws, Metro, and Sobeys. Uh, they lost their pandemic pay. They're still paid low wages. Uh they're losing full-time jobs. That's one of the reasons there's actually a strike. So, I mean, this union busting question has so many different aspects to it, and they're not always strikes. Of course, there was the lockout in Regina, and uh, just before the pandemic started, uh, maybe a month or two before, uh, we uh, at Rank and File, we, we kind of fundraised you and sent you to Regina for uh, the lockout at the refinery, which was a clear case of union busting. And that raised all sorts of, um, I mean, so many different aspects of the tactics of union busting. And um, yeah, what do you uh, recall from that lockout that really struck you about the tactics of union busting? Um, yeah, I think that it's important to study the ways that employers will uh, attack unions and the way that governments will attack unions um, because there's so many different uh, ways that they do it, right? And kind of understanding the tactics that they'll use, it, it can help you report on the story and really see clearly what is going on, um, what the employer is doing to try to like spin the narrative in a way that favors them. Um, one of the interesting examples from Regina was the story about uh, tire spikes being found in the delivery trucks to the refinery. Um, so these are just massive, massive trucks that would, you know, carry um, oil 
to and from the refinery and the trucking association i'm not sure if it was a company or association but they reported that they found tire spikes and they said oh this must be the union and it was never verified but the way that it was reported it got circulated fairly uh widely and even watching it from afar i looked at the story and i was like i was like what is going on like this seems like very dangerous it seems like very you know on both sides just a lot of like anger and frustration and once you actually get to the refinery and you look around (laughs) and you talk to some of the workers um you recognize how volatile the refinery situation uh, is in terms of safety in terms of you know accidents or potential uh, explosions things like that um it's really not in the best interests of the workers to have you know a giant uh truck like crash anywhere near the refinery um so just sort of identifying things like that um and recognizing you know what what is really going on here like what is the motive for the workers to be doing this what is the motive for the employer to put this kind of story out or for um people who are aligned with the employer to put this kind of story out like what is the motives behind these narratives i think those are really important to recognize because employers will hire these pr firms during these disputes to sort of um put out these kinds of narratives. So I think that was really interesting. And it wasn't my experience there. It wasn't just that example, although that I think was the first one that I remember seeing in the news. There was talk, uh, there was a report of a bunch of managers' houses in the Regina area area being paintballed, uh, which, which, hmm. Interesting. I don't think there was any photos of it. No, I, no photos. I never saw any photos of it. Um, you know, I don't know. And that's the thing with the Caltrop thing. It was never proven um, with the managers, you know, houses being apparently vandalized. It's like there was never really any evidence provided. But so we, we can't say for sure, like, who did what or who was behind it, etc. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, you know, they were never verified. Um Although we do have verification of all sorts of violence and violent threats that did happen during that lockout, and it was all one way. It was, it was uh, the uh, what was it? The the secondary pickets in uh, Alberta had uh, videotaped incidents of people pushing pickets out of the way. There were uh, examples of online threats by various right-wing groups talking about running over the pickets. And then there was the infamous letter uh, that went to, uh, that the Regina police and city hall sat on and didn't tell the union about. Isn't that right? Yeah, there was a bomb threat um, that was made by, I believe it was sent by a farmer. Um, Yeah, in order to answer uh, answer that, to, to tie that up, I'll just say, when I was looking at what was happening and all these news stories that were coming out, it made me realize that, you know, I wanted to learn more about the different tactics that employers were using and who were these like PR firms that they were hiring, um, what kinds of tactics were they using um, to better understand um, the kinds of mixed messaging that comes out during these labor disputes. I think it's really, it's really important. And so that kind of sparked my interest in wanting to kind of research more union busting 
uh, tactics because it just helps you get a clear understanding of, of what's going on. And, yeah, and what to expect, that's for sure. Uh, Affimac was the firm that, uh, I just confirmed it with a Google search, that Affimac was the company that they hired to do a lot of this stuff. It wasn't just PR, but they're also the company that's involved in hiring the scabs, too. Like it's pretty ex an extensive operation. Imagine that a whole company that lives off union busting. Yeah, and I never saw any reporting or any profile on on this company or on what what they were doing. And I thought was a huge part of the story that I don't think got fully uh, fully covered. You know, and so I think you're missing a big chunk of what's happening by overlooking that, basically. So you stayed focused on Saskatchewan uh, since uh, the lockout leading up to the provincial election that just happened. And you've been uh, doing some of that kind of uh, deep dive research uh, that is revealing all sorts of things that isn't coming up in the mainstream and corporate media. Um, what, what have you learned uh, and what sort of things have you found out? And if you have any scoops, uh, please tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Our main focus was um, looking at the corporate financing um, of the Saskatchewan party because the Saskatchewan has unlimited corporate donations, basically. They're one of the only provinces in Canada to have unlimited corporate donations, uh, which include out-of-province and out-of-country donations. Um, and I think that this speaks a lot to the um, policy and agendas um, that the Saskatchewan party, you know, puts forward. Um, just massive amounts of money, um, so many corporations donating, and yeah, very little coverage, uh, at least during the election, um, of, of who these donors are and, and what their interests are. So we did a lot of research on that, and it wasn't you know, it was all right there. The fiscal returns are available for anybody to look at. You know, you don't have to do necessarily like a, a super, super deep dive. You just have to kind of, you know, click on the Election Saskatchewan website and go look at them and, and see how much people are donating. Um, so I think that was really important. What I noticed was this has been going on for a really long time. It's not necessarily news that there's unlimited corporate donations in Saskatchewan. Um, the CCPA did a report on it, I think in 2011, where they kind of mapped out the corporate donations. And so we were kind of just like updating a lot of that information with like the latest numbers and, and things like that as new fiscal returns come out each year. And what I found was it was quite normalized in Saskatchewan where people were like, oh yeah, like, you know, not surprising. And well, that's just how it is. And I think that when something is one way for so long, it becomes sort of accepted and, and normalized. And I think the media's job should be to question things that are just accepted as, as normal. And so I think that's a bit of what we try to do is just highlight, you know, like who's, who's in power and, you know, who has the purse strings in the province and what do they want? And is that in the interests of, you know, all workers in Saskatchewan? Um, or is it just in the interests of, 
um, people who are out to make a buck, basically. Yeah, so, it, it was amazing seeing the contrast with the lockout, the way that the co-op and all their allies in Saskatchewan went after the union for, you know, being affiliated with Unifor, which is based in Toronto. So it's, you know, the Eastern Bastards. Uh, it's a union run from Toronto, which is obviously not the case at all. It's a historic union local at the refinery that's been there since the 1940s, long before Unifor ever existed. And in the meantime, the, the, the election rolls around and you have the Saskatchewan party accepting, uh, I remember one of the stories was accepting all this money from Albertan companies. I mean, the Saskatchewan party is uh, certainly not a party just of Saskatchewan. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I just found it really curious that there there really wasn't much coverage of that at all. And we were one of the only people who were drawing attention to that. So that was something that was really uh, interesting for me to learn. I hadn't really done that kind of specific reporting before. So I learned a lot through that experience um, and doing that kind of research. It was really fascinating. And we really only like, you know, hit the surface of, of what's going on because you have basically a decade or more of these returns. Um, there's just so much there. So it's not... It's not hard to do. It's not hard to look at. It's just a matter of, you know, taking the time and, and resources to um, look at those kinds of stories. What was your read on how uh, labor issues were covered during the Saskatchewan election? Did you, uh, or not covered? Yeah, I mean, I've, I would be interested in doing a media analysis um, to look kind of specifically at how different subjects were, were covered in the media. So I I can't speak like definitively, but I think they could have been covered more for sure. Um, I think there was a lot of talk about the deficit and how much money that the Saskatchewan party was spending in the pandemic and how we're going to have to pay for it later with more deficits. And there's a lot of like concern around that, which came from some kind of prominent media voices, I would say, like commentators, things like that. Um, so I think that was really interesting that that took up so much air during the election when like people are like suffering extensively because of the pandemic. So I think there could have been more issues drawn, um, more conversation around that. The lockout didn't really come up very much at all, uh, even though it was just in the last year. And the Saskatchewan party was talking about how much they value the energy industry and energy workers etc. Um, I don't think there was very much coverage that was retrospective, you know, looking at how the Saskatchewan party really treated the locked out uh, oil workers in that they didn't visit the picket line and the workers reported that it was extremely hard to get a hold of uh, Scott Moe or any of the MLAs. So I think that could have um, been talked about more widely as well. This like massive labor dispute um, that had a huge impact and was just sort of forgotten about during the election coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, uh, do you want to talk about John Gormley at all? Um, or introduce him to the world? Because I don't think people outside <laughs> of Saskatchewan know who he is. If you want to, if you want to. Yeah, that's true. Um, no, I, I can, I can mention a bit of it as well. Um, well, I mean, I, I looked him up and he's uh he's a former Mulrooney Tory 
Uh, he's a lawyer, and he's had this radio show for a long, long time in Saskatchewan. I mean, that's yeah. all I know. I mean, I think that's part of it. Um, kind of the main media outlets, there's, you know, the two newspapers, the Star Phoenix and the Leader Post. They're both post-media. And then you have um, the kind of two main talk radio stations in Saskatoon and Regina, and those are run by Rolco Radio. And um, the Rolco Radio owners have been linked to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations to the Saskatchewan party uh, over the past, you know, 10 years. So they're just huge donors. And then there just happens to be this pretty prominent, um, you know, talk radio host on their network who has like three hours a day five days a week, uh, kind of like prime time from, I think it's 8.30 to 12.30. He has such an effect that, you know, local activists and people who are critical of the Saskatchewan party um, can be intimidated when he sort of will target them. And as a result, you know, a lot of these people have reported that they've received online harassment uh, after he mentions them on their show. And so I think that is something that we also drew attention to that I think was really important in understanding, you know, how the political narratives are crafted and perpetuated in Saskatchewan and in the media and why it's important to sort of challenge them. Yeah, that role of the, the talk show, the talk radio host is... Uh... It's been going on since the 1930s. Uh, you don't have to go far from Saskatchewan to see one of those early examples with Bible Bill Aberhart taking Alberta by storm and building that base up through propagating his you know, ideas, ideology, and scapegoating uh, over that radio. And that, that method, you know, it's tried and true, and Gormley is doing it today except it's linked into an even more extensive like media, corporate media empire. Okay, so that's uh, all we have. we got to move on. So uh, thank you, Emily, for speaking with me uh, as the, uh, the host. Uh, huh. <laughs> thank, you <for> spe- <laughs> thank you for speaking to me as the uh, host of your own show to the guest host as the guest to the guest host. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That was really great. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for um, guest hosting. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to hear what uh, other segments you have planned. Great. All right. Thanks. Bye. Honey, I like them apple trees. They pulled up from the ground. And how do you like those companies that moved away from town? And how do you like those million jobs, the ones we could never find? And the way we fret now to pay our debts while it boggles up the mind. The break in the social safety net from New Brunswick to BC. And the break in the backs of the lumberjacks in the logging industry. The young men roam from the broken homes while the old men wipe their brow. From the working girl to the mother's world, hey, how do you like it now? How do you like it now? Can we survive somehow? They're on a roll, they're getting rid of the dole And how do you like it now? 